Raiden and I always talk to you about following the numbers when it comes to investing in the stock market. Today, we bring to you Mark Holbert, an expert who writes articles for Barron's and MarketWatch. Super excited to have him with us today. In fact, he talks about his contrarian point of view, meaning if you think everything according to the news is going to be up, it's probably going to go down. And we can see that in a vice versa type of scenario. But we are super excited to be able to have him on and be able to do a nice interview. We've been telling you that we have created a texting uh, hotline, if you want to call it that, so that you can text us any topics you'd like us to cover, any questions you have. We're glad to be able to text back and forth with you on that, as well as being able to make future episodes on those questions. You can text us at 984-207-1753. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Secure Your Retirement Podcast. This is the place where high achieving professionals come to gain confidence on how to successfully navigate their transition into and life during retirement. There's no such thing as a passive retirement plan. To have a successful financial future, your plan must be actively managed. Each week, we will bring you action plans and expert interviews that will help you gain insights, learn fresh perspectives, and finally experience peace of mind about your retirement. Here to help you achieve your dream retirement and live the life you deserve are your hosts, certified financial planners, Raiden Stancil and Merce Tariq. Hello everyone, welcome to our podcast today. We have a very special guest with us. Um, we're excited to have with us, Mark Holbert. And uh, you know, I have read uh, Mark's uh, articles now for quite a few years in Market Watch and super excited. He's written uh, for Market Watch, Wall Street Journal, um, Barron's. He has uh, been in the New York Times business section, has written all kinds of different things when it comes to markets and how to look at those. And I just find that when I read his, uh, his articles that I, I get a lot of uh, you get your mind off of what you're thinking that you're hearing in the news and you get away from that uh, thing you might hear on uh, some financial news show and you start looking at numbers and it just helps me and my brain kind of get things together. And so, Mark, we are super excited to have you with us today. Thank you for coming on and having a conversation with us. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Good. So, hey, Mark, we'd like to just kind of get a little bit for our listeners to be able to to get to know you a little bit. Can you just First of all, just describe what it is that you do as far as what, what, what that is for everyone. Well, I'd be happy to. I'll try to make a, a long story short a lot shorter. Um, uh, a, uh, I started in 1980 tracking the performance of investment newsletters. So this is back in the era when uh, people like Joe Granville were uh, big names. Uh, he was on the cover of the f front page, I believe, of the New York Times. He, I think, claimed, I think he was probably right, he was the only newsletter editor that was ever on the front page of the New York Times. There was a lot of attention being paid to newsletter editors, more so than I'd say right now. I think the newsletter industry has probably suffered, as most media has, under the internet. But uh, back then, there was a lot of attention paid, and yet no one was tracking their performance. And so I had uh, the reaction I think a lot of people did, which was it wouldn't it be fun to keep track of how much money you would have actually made or lost if you did what they told you to do. And the only difference between them and me was that I was at a stage in my life where I could do something about it. I was just out of grad school and a couple of friends put up the money and I had the time. And so I just started subscribing to a number of these newsletters, constructing model portfolios according to what they, uh, they were recommending and uh, reported how much these portfolios made or lost. So that's the core of what I've been doing, believe it or not, now 
for over 40 years. I hate to say it's been that many years, but that's how long I've been doing this. Um, in 2002, I sold my company. It was the Hulbert Financial Digest was the name of the newsletter that I published. I sold it to CBS MarketWatch. And then that uh, website was in turn bought by Dow Jones in 2005. And so I, I've been part of their operation now for close to two decades. Um, you mentioned in your intro that uh, I was writing for the New York Times prior to that, and that's true. And even prior to that, I wrote for Forbes. So I've been writing for a number of different uh, publications, but the one unifying theme is that I, I take what I consider to be somewhat of a contrarian perspective uh, on, on the day's news, which is why I think you and others have that reaction that you mentioned, which is that it sort of takes you uh, away from being obsessed by the day's news. And uh, I followed the lead of a, a guy named Humphrey Neal, who wrote a book 100 years ago called The Art of Contrary Thinking. And one of his famous lines is that uh, if everyone thinks the same way, they're probably wrong or something to that effect. And uh, that's not always the case, but it usually is. By the time everyone's jumped on board a particular trade or a particular strategy, most of the, the big profits, uh, if not all of the profits that will be realized by that strategy, or that trade have probably long since been exhausted. And so uh, what I do is remind people that when things look really good, they're not necessarily gonna you know be good forever in the same way when things look pretty bad i remind people that they're not always terrible okay good great mark thanks that's a great summation of you know how you got to where you are today um so of all that what would you say um what do you love most about what you do right now is it is it you know the 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 difference of the way that you look at the markets I think that's a big part of it. I think a lot of it also is that it's one of the most intellectually challenging uh, areas of life. Um, the, you know, I know other people, I'm not one of them that, uh, you know, will go into sports betting or whether they go to Vegas and try to be a card counter on blackjack. There are a number of ways in which you can challenge yourself to try to figure out how the world works. This just happens to be one that has particularly intrigued me. And I think it is ultimately fascinating. And it, uh, you know, we're all humbled by the markets over and over again. And yet we come back trying to see if we can figure out uh, some way to do better the next time. So I'd say that's probably one underlying motivation. Another is uh, just to understand the statistics uh, behind the market, that there, there's so much data out there. And much of it is random. It's just noise. But there are regularities. And the challenge is, can we figure out where those regularities are and differentiate them from the, the sheer randomness that otherwise dominates the markets? So one of the things that I was, uh, it, I guess, even drew me more to, to, as I did research on you and your uh, statistics, your services, was I was looking at this and I started looking you up and I went and found out and I said, huh, He's in Chapel Hill and, uh, you know, we're in Raleigh. So that was like, oh, well, that's a super connective. But where did you grow up? Are you from North Carolina? No, actually, I grew up in Kansas and uh, went to college in Philadelphia. I went to Haverford College back in the early 70s and then went to grad school at Oxford in England. And it was uh, where I graduated from there in 79 was uh, when I moved back to the U.S. and went to Washington, D.C. And I attended one of these big investment conferences. I was mentioning how newsletters were attracting so much attention back then. There'd be these huge investment conferences uh, that were probably the, you know, the precursor to the internet. It's where thousands of people would get together and different newsletter editors would get up and speak and so forth. And that was my exposure to the business. And so I, I stayed in DC 
oh golly, 20, 25 years, and then uh, moved down here with my family to uh, Chapel Hill in in the early 2000s. Mm. So that's um, that's really great. Um, I say we dive right in, Mark, uh, and thanks again for being with us today. Oh, my uh, pleasure. <clears throat> we've been looking forward to this interview quite a bit. Uh, you mentioned one thing about there's so much data out there in the markets, and I think for our viewers to really get a nice baseline of understanding, I think it would be prudent for us to talk about uh, the different types of data that we look at in the markets. And I think if we can discuss the difference between fundamental investing and then technical analysis. Yeah, it's interesting. When I started in 1980, I thought that my data might provide an ultimate answer as to what's the best approach uh, to the markets, only to discover that in the right hands, almost any approach probably can work. And in the wrong hands, almost any approach probably won't work. So it's focused my attention more on the discipline and the patience that people bring to whatever discipline that they, uh, whatever approach that they take in the market, rather than thinking that, you know, technical analysis doesn't work or it does work and fundamental analysis is worthless. Mm. I, I find that those grand pronouncements uh, will get attention. You know, if I write a column saying that, it'll get a lot of traffic, but uh, it, it's not helpful to make those grand pronouncements. And so I, I focus more, I think, is probably a, a helpful avenue of, of approach is simply what is it that we bring to the table and being disciplined and following whatever approach. I'm not being particularly original in saying, I mean, technical analysis uh, probably works best over the shorter term, but doesn't really help you over the longer term. And it's just the reverse for fundamental analysis. Uh, the analogy for fundamental analysis that I, uh, I find that is most helpful is from Ben Enker, who's one of the heads of, uh, uh, of GMO, the big firm up in Boston. But he, said, he likens the market to a leaf in a hurricane. We don't know which way it's going to go over the short term, but we know eventually it'll land on the ground. And I think fundamental analysis does, in the end, provide that gravitational pull to the market, just like gravity does to that leaf in the hurricane. But it can take many, many years for that, uh, for that market to submit to that gravitational pull. So, I, you know, so for me to say that fundamental analysis doesn't help would be to say gravity doesn't, you know, doesn't apply anymore, which obviously it does. But on the other hand, uh, it can take so long for, it to, uh, for the market to s submit to that gravitational pull that uh, clients and, uh, you know, may find that it's way beyond their tolerance level anyway. And so you can't ignore uh, any particular approach, I don't think. Yeah. So <clears throat> could you tell us like what, what, what prompted you to start the, um, the, I guess the Holbert, Holbert uh, financial digest, like what that, how that evolved. And then could you tell us a little bit about what that actually is? I mean, what, what data you are tracking? Well, sure. I mean, I, uh, the news that I just to be uh, to on the record say that it, that, uh, it, it came to an end in 2016. Unfortunately, Dow Jones had bought CBS MarketWatch and they decided that they didn't want to be in the newsletter business any longer. And so they, they closed it down. Um, but I continue privately to track a number of different investment newsletters. And so I want to differentiate my performance tracking on the one hand from my newsletter on the other hand, which no longer is published. But basically, that was the core, that tracking was the core of my newsletter. So I would set up these model portfolios, and uh, I created on my computer uh, or on our network, because we had several employees having to help us out do this, but we created a simulation of the real world to the extent we can ever 
simulate the real world. So we got data feeds from all the exchanges and uh, we take into account bid-ask spreads and dividends and splits and corporate actions, you name it, everything you would need to know to see how much your portfolio does over time. And then we just let the chips fall where they may. We would track uh, each one of these newsletters if they had a telephone hotline or a fax or an email or posted on their website a change to their portfolio, we would uh, immediately make a change to the portfolios we have on our computer. And, and then just at the end of every month, report how much money those portfolios had made or lost over the previous month or quarter or year or what have you. So we have data now going back to 1980 for some portfolios. Now, of course, most newsletters that were around then are no longer around today. And then of course, vice versa, most that uh, are around today weren't around then. But nonetheless, we, we don't throw away the data. So we have all of this uh, enormous, you know, enormous uh, database on what strategies have worked and which ones have not. Gotcha. So, so primarily, what to to kind of sum up what I got there, the the financial digest is to really gather a bunch of information as far as trades that are being made from a lot of other institutions, a lot of other money managers, and essentially find a trend maybe as far as what is working and what is not working. Well, that's interesting. The trend part I'll mention in a minute, but you know, you got it right that basically that uh, we're just like a consumer reports. We're tracking in just the same way you might find out which refrigerators conk out more quickly and which ones have the longest shelf life as it were. We'll do the same thing and there'll be a lot of short-term volatility, but over time you'll see over a five, 10, 20 year period, certain strategies have done better than others. Now, as far as the trend, that's a particularly intriguing question that you ask. We did notice uh, after uh, you know, 10, 15 years of doing this that we found that the newsletter editors on balance were more bullish at some times and more bearish on others. It wasn't random. And that was the, the birth really of my contrarian shift in my thinking, which was that when you have this excessive bullishness on the part of the newsletter community, that that was not a good sign for the market and vice versa. Now, it's not a very long-term predictor. It usually... Uh, has to the extent it works, it's over a couple month period. But it is interesting how people, when they become too bullish, the community as a whole, you know, becomes way too bullish and vice versa. And so we have these swings from excessive bullishness to excessive bearishness. And if you can resist those trends, I find that over time you'll do better than uh, than you'll do by tr tracking the you know at least the typical advisor. Yeah, and when you talk about contrarian or you know a type of of investing, which is, and I'll just repeat it, and then I got a question that lead up to it, but basically when things look super bullish, that means usually uh, we might have a correction coming and vice versa on that. If things are really, really low. You might have a, say, okay, we've got some potential opportunity. Now, in March of, of 20, 2020, when we're at the bottom after that very quick and abrasive sell-off, I know in uh, uh a couple of your articles, you had looked at that and you were saying, hey, when we have this type of sell-off, usually uh, you're, you're going to have, and if I remember it right, you were, you were kind of looking at the, the data saying that there's going to potentially be another sell-off at some point to, I guess, kind of balance all that out as we, got, as we started to climb back out of that. What are you seeing on that now? Has it changed? Is it different because of a pandemic or because of what the government's doing? Um, have you, are you seeing that that might change those numbers? Yeah, well, <laughs> it's a good question, and it's a good reminder of uh, how how the markets humble uh, humble all of us, but especially me. So you know, I was definitely wrong. I thought when the market took off in April and May, I said that you know I expected a, a retest of the lows. 
Um, obviously, we've not gotten that retest of the lows. But one, I mean, just to start, so contrarian analysis actually did a relatively good job in March uh, and February and January, the first three months of the year. So in fact, at the market high, uh, right before the market started turning down in late February, there was uh, more bullishness than uh, among the timers we track, market timers, than almost any other time over the last 20 years. Um, now, you couldn't say contrarian analysis predicted that uh, a pandemic would you know, lay low the market, but you could say, as indeed you just said in your question, that given the fact that there was that excessive bullishness, it's unlikely that uh, uh, the market will keep going. Um, and then at the March lows, there was excessive bearishness. There's no doubt about it. We all recall, this is re relatively recent in memory, just how terrible it felt on the March 23rd lows, for example and indeed the market took off. So that's, contrarian analysis did okay uh, in those two particular points, both the high and the low. But subsequently to that, I'd say that uh, it's, uh, the, at a minimum, the jury is still out, or it just you could say it was just plain wrong. The, uh, there've been a number of weeks over the last month or two where we've seen excessive bullishness on the part of the advisors we track. And maybe what we're seeing yesterday and today uh, is, evidence of finally the market succumbing to that excessive bullishness, who knows. But the market had continued higher, as you know, for the last four, six weeks in the face of that excessive bullishness. So I, get, I draw a couple of lessons from that. One is no system works all the time. And secondly, even when it does work, it doesn't necessarily succumb immediately. We've seen in the past uh, up to a two or three months period of a lag between excessive bullishness and bearishness in the market uh, finally succumbing. So this is not unprecedented, but I will say that uh, uh, I, as you say, predicted that the market would pull back and at least until now we hadn't really seen it. I hope that you are enjoying the show. By the way, if you are in or nearing retirement and are someone who wants to gain clarity on what questions you should be asking, learn what the biggest retirement myths are, and identify what you could be doing to achieve peace of mind for your retirement, get started today by requesting your complimentary video course, Four Steps to Secure Your Retirement. To access the course, simply visit pomwealth.net forward slash podcast. If you're new here or you haven't done this yet, this is definitely the first step to get started in applying these principles to your life. So head over to pomwealth.net forward slash podcast and check us out. Yeah, on that point, while we're on, you know, what has happened this, thus far in 2020 uh, amidst COVID-19 and the, the market sell off, the March lows in, in uh, and then the recovery that we have seen, you know, I think a lot of advisors, us included, and regardless of what strategy that you're running, a lot of us thought, pretty much exactly what you did. You know, the economy not doing well, um, uh, a lot of companies struggling amid, amongst the shutdowns. Uh, but one major thing happened that was completely unexpected. It's never happened before. And, and that, that's the Fed and the action that the Fed has taken uh, over the past five months. Um, so what are your thoughts on that as far as what they've been doing? Because uh, ultimately, you know, you probably good chance you would have been right if the Fed didn't do what they, what they have done so far. So what are your thoughts on all that? 
Right. Well, you know, this is always the problem with uh, trying to use historical data, because as you say, this is something that's so unprecedented that this is where history doesn't really help us much at all. I mean, it makes perfect sense to me that you throw $5 trillion or whatever the amount of the increase of their balance sheet uh, into the economy, it's going to, a lot of it's going to find its way in the stock market. Um, so that makes me think, well, yes, the market still has a, a long way to go. On the other hand, you start looking at some of the uh, prognostications for earnings and the uncertainty that businesses still face. And uh, you know, the way to put it, there's a lot of known unknowns. And then, of course, there are a lot of uh, unknown unknowns. And uh, it doesn't take much imagination to think that it doesn't take uh, more than one or two of them to sabotage the market. So you know, I think that way, then I think, well, yes, the market uh, uh, you know, or at least the economy as a whole will struggle until some of those uncertainties are resolved. So, you know, I can see it on both sides. I, uh, I guess I'm a little wary of saying, you know, because the Fed's doing something they've never done before that, you know, that, that, that all bets are off that would otherwise come from a historical analysis because that then slips very easily into saying this time is different. And those, as we know, are the foremost dangerous words on Wall Street. So uh, I'm a little wary of going there, but on the other hand, you know, you're absolutely right that it is unprecedented. But you know, you can look at any situation and say it was unprecedented. You go to back to 2008, of course, nothing had quite happened like that before either. And so everyone's always looking at history to try to draw the, uh, the particular analogies that, uh, that make the most sense. The one that I find myself, you know, again, this is uh, just my commentary, not my data analysis, but that makes most sense to me is that uh, the economy responds to uncertainty. I mean, uh, businesses hate uncertainty and we have uncertainty that's off the maps right now. And that's not just anecdotal or subjective. There's a index that uh, out of Stanford and University of Chicago and Northwestern called the Economic Policy Uncertainty Index. And it's now uh, more than double its highest level at any other time back to 1900. They backdated the index all the way back to 1900. And it's based on a very objective uh, read of newspaper stories and things like IRS regulations in the Federal Register. It's a fairly sophisticated index. And they've gone back and uh, correlated the Economic Policy Uncertainty Index with the, the gross domestic product and find that uh, the, uh, you know, not a big surprise, but they've been able to show it statistically that the economy will respond downward to heights, uh, to increases of uh, uncertainty and vice versa. So it seems to me that the Fed can maybe postpone uh, the, uh, you know, a, a bigger drop, and no doubt they did, but they can't in and of themselves overcome that uncertainty. And until that uncertainty is resolved, I, I think the, uh, the, the, the next couple of years are, are far more uh, risky than, than I think the market right now is, is, is betting. Though maybe the last couple of days when the market's finally having a little bit of a correction, maybe they're saying, oh my gosh, maybe that uncertainty is a bit of a problem after all. Who knows? Yeah. So we're, we're actually just, uh, for anyone who's uh, listening, we're recording this and, and doing this interview here the 1st of September. So I've got a question now kind of about the remainder of the year. We've obviously got an election this year. We've still got to deal with the pandemic potential of a, of a surge again on those uh, numbers as we get into um, October, November um, timeframe. 
What, what do you see? I mean, if you had to look at from a pure, you know, data perspective, first of all, let me ask this. It, what's the data around an election? I mean, do you see that, you know, does it, does it matter necessarily whether you have a Republican or a Democrat elected? I mean, have you, have you done much on that kind of a research? Yeah, I have looked at it. I mean, there are a million ways of slicing and dicing the data, as I'm sure you know, and you've read. But one thing that I think is very helpful from a data point of view are these betting markets that allow you to bet on these uh, electronic futures. They're called all or nothing futures contracts, and you can bet on an outcome. And since it's a, either pays 100 cents on the dollar or zero, depending on the outcome, the price of those contracts at any given time reflect the market's assessment of what the odds are of that outcome. And so these contracts, for example, a Biden win or a Trump win, there've been you know, contracts tied to each of those outcomes. You can track their prices now going back a year and correlate that with the market. And there've been times when uh, Biden's, uh, look at his contract in particular, his, uh, the odds of winning have gone way up and then they've come way back down the last couple of weeks. And you try to see whether there is any uh, consistent relationship between those changes in the Biden contract and the market, and you just don't see it. Um, so I've written a couple of columns on this, that if, uh, for example, President Trump is saying that if, if, uh, if he loses, uh, you know, you can kiss your 401ks goodbye or whatever saying he said, if that were really true, or let's maybe put it a different way, if investors really thought that were true and Biden's chances go up significantly, you'd expect the market to tank and you just haven't seen it. If anything, you've actually seen a slight correlation between the Biden's chances of winning going up and the market going up. And so uh, that isn't to say that's cause and effect. We all know that correlation is not causation, but I would just say that if indeed there were any chance of your 401ks going to zero in an event that could happen within two months, uh, and you saw a big increase in probability of that event, you would, you would probably see a huge drop in the market whenever that uh, increase in the Biden contract. So um, I would say that, uh, you know, th that's not to say that uh, investors don't care about politics or the market doesn't care about it, but I, I think it's far more mixed and nuanced than, uh, than, uh, than people think. And so I would not... Uh, I think there's a lot of other uncertainty that could more easily sabotage the market. I mean, I think the, uh, the nightmare scenario that we're facing right now is the prospect that we don't know who's going to win the election for not just a couple of weeks, but a month or two after the election. And if you think we are facing economic policy uncertainty now, which undeniably we are, put on top of that the fact that we don't even know who's going to be running the White House and you have, uh, you know, Bush versus Gore all over again, you know, squared or cubed. I mean, that would just cause, I think, businesses just to basically stop all, all innovation, stop all, uh, you know, capital investment. You know, they just, this, the, the economic environment would be so uncertain that they just say, we can't proceed. And I, so I think those things are much more likely to cause the market to fall. So, you know, on the other end, the market is betting that we'll resolve these things all to the to the upside. And, uh, you know, it's always dangerous to bet that the market is wrong. Um, but uh, I don't think it would take much evidence to the, you know, to the contrary, that there's more uncertainty than they were imagining for the market to drop. And that, again, may be what we're seeing over the last couple of days. Yeah. So how would you see that? You, I mean, how do you think uh, 
you, you think December 31st, are we going to be positive, negative, the market that is, what would you, what would you think? Relative to where we are now? Is that the question? Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, I was afraid you'd ask me that question. The, uh, um, you know, I always bet that the market will probably be a bit higher. I mean, just because historically that's the, that's the, the, the most intelligent bet over any given time. And so for my 401k, which I still have at Dow Jones, even though they, uh, they shut down my newsletter, I still have it there. It's, it's invested. And, uh, and I, I don't try to play the market. And, uh, you know, I, I felt pretty bad on March 23rd. I'm feeling a lot better right now than I did then. Um, and, you know, it'll still be invested on December, 20, uh, December 31st. But uh, so I think that's always the bet. But if you ask me if I'm worried that it won't be, I think there's a not insignificant chance that the, the market could be a lot lower. I mean, that really in the end is what, you know, we're people in the market are compensated for taking that risk. If there were no risk, then you wouldn't see a higher return from equities than you would from other assets. So I guess right now, another way to put it is I'm feeling very much the risk for which I'm getting compensated. Yeah. Right, yeah. Yeah, it's, a, it's quite the uncertain time right now. Um, uh, so I'd like to transition just a tiny bit. Uh, you know, I've read quite a few of your articles over the years as well. And uh, every now and then you talk about uh, these sentiment indexes that you have created. Um, uh, consumer sentiment has a big impact uh, on what the markets are doing, where people are buying in the markets. Uh, can you take us through, you know, what led you to create the Holbert sentiment indexes and then, you know, what the purpose is behind those? Oh, absolutely. So as I mentioned earlier, I, after about 10, 15 years, am I doing this? So that would be since I started in 1980, maybe mid 90s or a little bit later, I started noticing these consistent trends towards excessive bullishness and excessive bearishness. If, if sentiment didn't play a role, then you'd expect that you'd have the same percentage of investment newsletters and market timers bullish or bearish at any given time. But that was just not the case. So for example, in the late 90s, right at the height of the internet boom, you saw a lot of bullishness. I mean, and we all remember that bullishness. And then at different times, uh, you also seen excessive bearishness. And so that, um, that was what was really the spark that led me to uh, invent these sentiment indices because I had all this data. So I was already tracking all these advisors. I was tracking uh, about 200 newsletters and between them, they had about 600 separate portfolios or strategies. So we had a fairly you know, deep database that we could look at what was the average exposure to the market on any given day. And so we started offering that to clients. Would you be interested in an index that would change every day? It would tell you the most up-to-date average exposure to the market. And, uh, and that's, uh, that's what we've done. Now, we've done a number of statistical studies of them over the years. And I want to stress, A, what I was saying earlier, they're not always right. So don't ever think to the contrary. And B, even when they're right, they're a very short-term tool where it looks like the average uh, uh, time horizon over which they have their greatest explanatory power is, uh, is no more than about three months. So if you're a long-term investor, this is uh, of perhaps good interest. It allows you to uh, not get swept up in whatever is uh, sweeping Wall Street at any given time. And that, there is some value in not getting swept up in that, as you know. But I wouldn't use it as a, as, a, as a basis for investing, except for the following. Let's say that you had some money that you were trying to decide when to invest in your 401k, or 
you decide, had to decide when to start taking money out. Let's say you had to pay for a college tuition or a down payment on a house. It might be worthwhile to put new money in at the point of maximum pessimism in the market, because more likely it's going to be a low price and take money out when, uh, when optimism is high. So what that would have told you is don't take your money out of the market on March 23rd. You should more likely put money in that. Of course, that's the last thing anyone wanted to do, but that's the point of contrarian analysis is that you do things uh, not because your, 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 uh, your heart says you wants to do it, but because your head tells you it's a good time. Likewise, last couple of weeks would have been a great time to take money back out of the market just because we're at, at, at periods of excessive bullishness. So um, that would be the only way in which I think a long-term investor might be able to put some of these sentiment indicators to use. But as I say, they're very short-term indicators, but they are, it's very regular. Um, it, it, the market oscillates back and forth between extremes of fear and, and greed. Again, I'm not the first to point that out. I think what I contribute to the, the discussion is that I have data that uh, allow for an objective assessment of those extremes of fear and, uh, and fear and greed. There are a lot of people who claim to be contrarian, but I don't think they have an objective uh, basis on which to claim when they say they see excessive bullishness or bearishness. I remember, this is a number of years ago, but I was the uh, MC of one of these investment seminars where lots of different uh, newsletter editors would get up and talk. And I, I kid you not, every single one of the people on one panel discussion I was leading all claimed that they were contrarian, all claimed that they were now going to say something that no one else ever believed. And that meant that each one of them was right. Well, of course, they all contradicted each other. And I think that contrarian analysis in that kind of thinking is just a, is an excuse for sloppy thinking, really. I mean, you know, if you, okay, I want to be bullish, I don't want to be a contrarian. So therefore, I'm going to claim everyone out there is bearish. And somebody else says, well, I want to be a contrarian, but I'm bearish. I'm going to claim everyone's out there is bullish. And you can always find plenty of pockets of bullishness or bearishness, even if it's, uh, you have to look hard. So you need an objective basis for whatever the consensus is before you can truly be a contrarian with discipline. Yeah. So um, a, a lot of good, good thoughts. We appreciate your, uh, your input on all these uh, questions that we're asking you. So how often do you write articles? Is there a, you do a certain amount of articles that you post or that you write? Uh, do you have a, like one a week or how, do, how does that work? Well, the, uh, it, I write for a number of different, uh, different publications, but it turns out to be about once a day. Most of them appear on MarketWatch. I write four times a week for MarketWatch, um, and then once a month for Barron's and once a month for the Wall Street Journal. And then I write periodically for thestreet.com and uh, also write for a, a new service that uh, is called Callaway Climate Insights. It's a uh, a brand new service that's created by the former editor-in-chief at MarketWatch, and he now is creating his own service with a focus on climate. So I write for all of those. And so, you know, there are lots of different places, but I'd say the main place uh, you can find my stuff is at MarketWatch. So can you, uh, when you, if you want to go find, let's say, a library of your articles, can you just go to, to MarketWatch and, and search you that way? Absolutely. Yeah. Just put my name in the uh, the search bar and then you can get you know, I, I suspect it goes back years. I don't know how long it goes, but you can see the full archive. Well, very good. Well, we appreciate it. And uh, I enjoy reading your articles. And now uh, maybe other folks will go out there and, and, and search you and, and read these articles because they certainly do give us a, a different way of thinking. That's the way I, I look at it. It's a, it's a very, very interesting. And so I 
truly appreciate you buying out some time here and, and coming on this uh, on our podcast and having a good conversation with us. Well, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right. Thank you. Have a good day. All right, everyone, that wraps up today's episode of the Secure Your Retirement podcast. If you found value in today's episode, we would love nothing more than for you to head on over to iTunes and give us a five-star rating and a review. Be sure to take a screenshot of the review before you submit it, and we'll send you a special gift. Our book, Get Off the Retirement Roller Coaster. Just email morgan at pomwealth.net with a screenshot of the review to get your gift. Also, be sure to subscribe so you get notified of new episodes as they're released every week. And finally, please share our podcast with your favorite social network so more of your friends and family can benefit from this information. Always remember, you've worked hard to get where you are, and now you deserve to have a retirement that works hard for you.